Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. A special two hours with my colleague George Knapp. George, of course, is a Nevada journalist who has been honored with the highest awards in broadcast journalism. The Peabody Award, you got a couple of those. The DuPont Award from Columbia University. The Edward R. Murrow Award, that is extremely prestigious. He has 27 regional Emmy Awards for investigative reporting. Just as a comparison, I have three. He's a longtime chief investigative reporter for KLAS-TV in Las Vegas, where he previously worked as a news anchor as well. He has co-authored the best-selling book, Hunt for the Skinwalker. And in 1989, his reports about Nevada Area 51's military base was selected by UPI as the best individual achievement by a reporter. Now, since 2006, he's also been our weekend host of Coast to Coast AM, and he's been associated with the program way back to the days of the late Art Bell. My pleasure to bring on the show, George Knapp. Hey, good to talk to you again, George, after just seeing you a few weeks ago. Yeah, that uh, that conversation we had in Laughlin got, uh, got both of us thinking about this subject. There's a lot to cover. There sure is. How did you, George, as a investigative reporter, get interested to investigate UFOs where, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you're the best reporter out there on this subject. How, how did this happen? It kind of literally walked in the door, George. Back in 1987, uh, I was just a regular reporter covering the mob and corruption and crime and all the no- normal uh, menu of stories that Las Vegas offers. All and, the fun uh, stuff. Walked, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no slow news day in this town, as you know. You and Tom know this town really well. Um in walks the John Lear into the TV station, and he had helped our, our station, our news department, break a big story. We had broken the story about the existence of this stealth fighter, this uh, plane that was out in the Nevada desert that was invisible to radar. And so he had some credibility with my news manager, a guy named Ned Day. And John walks into the newsroom with a pile of documents, puts them on Ned Day's desk, and says, Ned, this is your next big story. It's about UFOs, biggest cover-up in history. It'll make you famous. Ned looks at this material and leafs through it a little bit. He says, this can't be true. Take this away. Uh, if it were true, I'd already know about it, so I'm not going to do this story. I'd been eavesdropping, and I said to, to John Lear, hey, uh, let me take a look at that stuff. And so I took it home and read it, and it was intriguing. And at the time, I hosted a little talk show called On the Record. It was one of these local uh, public affairs-type shows that air at 6 six o'clock in the morning on a weekend and nobody watches it and your typical guest is a city councilman or a county commissioner i put john lear on this show and uh, uh whoa, lo and behold the, the public responded he unleashed this uh, torrent of ufo information i had never heard about conspiracies and cover-ups and and the public uh, started uh, calling and and writing and making an inquiry who was that guy i had him on again uh, a little bit later, months later, and there was an even bigger response. And I realized that this touched the pulse of the public in a way that had not been obvious to me before. So I started reading about it. The third time Lear came on this show, he hinted that he knew a guy who was trying to get a job out at Area 51, this mysterious base that few people in the world had ever heard of at that time outside of Nevada, or unless they had worked there. And and so that person turned out to be Bob Lazar, whom I met 30 uh-huh. years ago, almost to the month. And uh, we started hearing his story, put him on the air uh, in an anonymous interview, and it sort of exploded. It put Area 51 on the map. Tens of thousands of people went out there in buses uh, with binoculars to check it out. 
every media organization in the world uh, covered the story, the allegations that Lazar made, and I was kind of on my way. You're you're much like me, George. When people interview us, they ask us that question. So what do you believe in? And we always give them the reporter's answer, and that is it's not a matter of what I believe. It's what you believe after I present the story and the facts. But I'm going to ask you, after all these stories that you have done for years and years and years, do you think we're being visited by extraterrestrials? I don't know. I honestly don't. I mean, I thought. I think I started out uh, after that first initial burst of, of digging into it, believing that it was extraterrestrials, because that was the paradigm of the time, you know. It was the prevailing viewpoint within the UFO world, and uh, the prominent researchers at the time sort of believed that, or at least most of them did. But the more I dig into it, the less I seem to know. You know, I, I get that same question everywhere I go, George. Uh, grocery stores and restaurants yeah. and uh uh, you know, do you really believe this stuff? And I, I say, well, you know, when people ask me that, it's because usually they want to tell me their UFO story, and everyone has one. And I don't believe it in the sense of, like, it's a religion. I, I believe it's an interesting story that, if you could be proven, would be the biggest ever. It would change everything. It, 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 it sure would. When you were interviewing Lazar, did your eyes roll, or did you say to yourself, hey, this guy might be onto something? No, I was skeptical, and I was wary because, you know, for a mainstream news reporter, this is risky stuff. And uh, he was telling me stuff I'd never heard of before. I had no idea about the whole world of UFOs and conspiracies and uh, disinformation and subterfuge and treachery that is so common in, in the field. And, and uh, it, it, took a, it was a baptism of fire. It took many months for me to get comfortable with it being able to separate wheat from chaff. I read everything on the topic that I could find. I tried to figure out who in the field was believable and who wasn't. And Lazar's story, even by today's standards, it is 30 years later, it's 30 years now, um, was pretty tough to digest. We started digging into his background to try to get a handle on how much of his story we could corroborate. And it was quite a bit, as it turned out. And more importantly, uh, not you know, I'll never be able to go to the places where he said he worked and to see the things that he said he saw. But uh, it was obvious that there was an attempt to obscure his background, to wipe out any claims of the places where he worked, to discredit work that I know that he did. And more, most importantly of all, he seemed to know things that he shouldn't have known otherwise. The most dramatic incident of that is that he knew when the test flights were taking place because he took uh, people out there three weeks in a row, uh, stationed outside a base that does not exist then or now. And sure enough, these what looks like flying saucers flew up over the mountains at the time when he said they would be there. They videotaped them. So how did he know? And um, that sort of got me hooked. George Knapp with us, and we're going to be talking about some incredible things that George has covered, including his work on Hunt for the Skinwalker. Next hour, we'll take your phone calls with him. And folks, trust me when I tell you there is no reporter like George Knapp in the country who is as efficient as what he does. Linda Moulton Howe does a great job, but George is a true investigative journalist who just keeps going for that story. And, uh, do you think one day, George, we will get, as Stephen Bassett thinks, disclosure? I do not. Um, you know, I think that the uh, if, if we're talking about disclosure with a capital D, where the president comes out and makes some kind of a speech or announcement and says, you know, the aliens are here, it's true, they've been visiting us, there isn't much we can do about it, I don't see that happening. It would be incredibly disruptive, 
and I think probably unsettling to a big bunch of people. I think what we're seeing right now is a form of disclosure without the capital D. It's a in essence, it's confirmation. It's a really exciting time, maybe the most exciting time in all the years that I've covered it. So many pieces seemingly in motion on the UFO subject, more than any other time since I've been chasing it. So much energy, new people interested and active, and, and things are moving. I mean, the, probably the most important change is that the rest of the media are finally kept catching up to you and coast-to-coast on this subject, George, because the media environment has totally changed. Uh, the New York Times, when they broke out this story in December of 2017 about a secret Pentagon study of uh, UFOs, that changed everything. It made it acceptable for other news media to cover the topic, and they did. The Washington Post, uh, the L.A. Times, uh, the CNN, and Fox, multiple Fox broadcasts still 14, 15 months later, uh, and uh, Newsweek and Time and, and publications that don't normally take this seriously have taken it seriously. The result is people on Capitol Hill, uh, staff members of Congress, even elected members of Congress are now paying attention to it. And I'm sure we'll get into some details about that later, but the ball has really been moved down the field. It it is a remarkable change in a short period of time. And as I said, for somebody like me, it's really exciting. I do not expect disclosure. I don't expect a formal announcement, but I think what we're already seeing is a series of individual events seemingly unrelated, but all heading in the same direction. I share your skepticism about disclosure, George. I think if we get it, it's going to be whistleblowers and people that uh, you uncover, we uncover, who come forward and just tell us the way it is, and uh, hopefully sooner than later. But it's an amazing subject. And you do find now that the media seems to be picking up more and more on these stories where years ago it was kind of like swept under the carpet. But they seem really interested these days, don't they? Well, big time. I, I think we have to give credit, a lot of that credit, to, to the stars. Tom DeLong is a rock star. He's not the guy you expect to make a big splash on this subject, but the guy really applied himself uh, to it. He got uh, in touch with a series of higher and higher ups, uh, got them to talk to him. I know that a lot of people in the UFO community are suspicious of that, but uh, he was sort of keeping me in the loop uh, each step of the way as it happened. And I think the crowning achievement was a guy named Louis Elizondo. Lou Elizondo came forward. He had been in charge of this Pentagon program. He quit because he felt it wasn't getting the resources and attention that it deserved. He was a counterintelligence and intelligence operative. It put his life on the line for the American public uh, many times in his career. And he came forward and, and spoke about it, what he had learned, and said, in fact, this had been taken seriously at the highest levels that the Pentagon did not stop uh, the study of UFOs in 1969 when Project Blue Book ended, which is, you know, the official line is that that's when they stopped because there was nothing to study, that it wasn't a a matter of national security interest. And, of course, we always suspected that was not the case, and now we've had it confirmed that it wasn't. Those guys, along with a fellow named Chris Mellon, who, from the Mellon family, a, a wealthy and influential family, he had chosen a life of public service, worked for in intelligence uh, capacity on Capitol Hill, and then for the Defense Department in two different administrations, Jim Semivan, a guy from the CIA, Dr. Hal Putoff, a a physicist. People of of that caliber came forward and said, this stuff is true. It needs to be studied. And that seems to be what's happening. We don't have a full picture of everything that's going on behind the scenes, but it's pretty clear from what we know that quite a bit is is, uh, in play. 
It sure is. And we're going to talk a lot more about what you've been doing, George, in this field. We'll talk about Bob Bigelow. I want to take a quick moment, too, George, and thank you for your participation uh, on Coast to Coast. I mean, you are just a staple for us. And for me personally, it just feels great to know that I've got somebody of your caliber doing these shows on weekends, keeping things going. And I, I just want you to know how much we appreciate you. Well, I appreciate you, uh, your support, George. And, uh, you know, I, I tell people when they ask about it that you have had my back the whole time I've been there. And I, I get a really kick out of doing the show. It's a different format for me. Uh, you can do a lot of you can cover a lot of ground in four hours. As you know. Oh, and, uh, you sure can. Do you ever get tired? I mean, you're working full-time as a, as a television reporter. You're doing our shows. But uh, we somehow seem to get energy the older we get, don't we? Well, yeah, I, I feel that way. And it, as I said, it's a really exciting time now. I, I, I'll, uh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And uh, <laughs> you know, it, it feels like a golden opportunity to move the ball down the field right now. It's an exciting time. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.